0: got carried away talking there. Sorry, I didn't get up to the uh, platform in good time, but it's good to see you um, on this long weekend. Um, This is one of those moments, especially for people who have trailers and cottages and are traveling this weekend. It's so good to have you online with us, too. And uh, like I mentioned last week, our live stream volunteers do such a fantastic job. Um, If you would like to learn how you can participate or get involved in that team, reach out to Pastor Al. He would be happy to get you involved and connect with Jared Malcolm. That team down there does a fantastic job. So those of you who are watching online today, it's really good to have you with us. And um, those of you who are in person get ice cream sandwiches today after this gathering is over. So... Yeah, it's good to have people online, but wow, isn't it important to be here in person? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. There are benefits to gathering in person. In fact, people who are online, tithe is still 10%. People in person, it's 7.5%, actually. But Just kidding. Just kidding about that. Uh, also, some really, really, really good news. Um, we have sold out our vacation day camp. Like, yeah, 325 kids are already registered, and that's like three weeks or so before we get started. We have 15 on a waiting list, and um, the reason why is we just maxed out our facility. We just don't have any more space to responsibly care for kids. So uh, anyway, really, really uh, please pray with us um, as we head towards that week of vacation day camp. That's the seeds of the gospel. We'll find a uh, wonderful place to call home in the hearts of young minds. And uh, we'll just, uh, again, see a lot of fruitful things happen from that week. So that's really, really good news. You can still put yourself on the wait list because um, who knows what will happen. There might be room, and we would hope that would be the case. But um, Pastor Ken and Diane Larmer, who happen to be my parents, uh, celebrated their 60th anniversary on (laughs) Thursday. Yeah, that's a pretty big deal, eh? 60 years of faithful marriage. I think that's fantastic. So uh, we celebrate you, mom and dad, on this beautiful, beautiful moment. Um, Okay, so we're going to wrap up this series called Finding God. And uh, if you've been with us, you know that we've been tracking through this um, conversation, really, about um, how to find God when life is hard. That's not always easy. And there are some unique challenges when life is easier. How do we find God when life is a little bit easier? There's so many distractions, so many ways we can end up kind of, um, kind of not being intentional about our search for God because we're distracted with how good life can be going for us. We talked about finding God as a father and friend. Uh, we talked about finding God through the spiritual pathways And uh, if you weren't with us last week, you can catch up on our YouTube. Uh, We are not all the same. We are created equal, but our pathway by which we find God um, can be unique to our personality and to our temperament and to the way that God has kind of wired us up. And if we pay attention to the way that we we track with God and connect with Him, we'll do well. Uh, It will lead us to a more likely experience of flourishing and connection with God. Today we're going to talk about finding God in the unexpected. So it sort of feels a little bit um, contradictory because we've been talking about great deliberate intentionality around um, kind of searching out God. But there's this other side of our experience where all of a sudden God as we've been talking about in Luke 15, he finds us. Because theologically, biblically, remember the woman lost the coin. She searched the house till she found it. The shepherd uh, left the 99 in order to find the one that had wandered away. And then there is the father who is open-handed, open-armed to his son who turns for home. It's uh, the father. It's, it's God who does the searching theologically. But we do the turning. Um, do you remember this this concept from uh, Michelangelo who painted on the Sistine Chapel, Uh, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, the creation of Adam is what the painting is called, and we've kind of renamed it over the last number of weeks called the Reluctance of Adam. If you saw the whole portrait, uh, Adam is reclining back, he's leaning, he's half-hearted at best, and he's just not exerting his energy. Adam's on the left, God is on the right. You see God straining to touch the man, and Adam is sort of not sure if he wants to close the gap or not. And so it's very much a picture for us of how we have this freedom to choose. And um, the invitation is, will we reach for God? God has made it so simple for us to reach and that's really the invitation. The grand invitation is for us to touch God. But God is doing everything he can without violating our freedom in order to um, close the space between us and him. Remember, Paul writes, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, closing the gap in Jesus. And so um, we are uh, been taking inventory of the level of reluctance in our own lives. And so here you are on a long weekend. Canada Day weekend gathering for worship. What that tells me is that you want to continue the search, or perhaps perhaps some of you are on a search. Uh, it's a brand new experience for you, and you're looking to find meaning and significance, and exploring the things of God in the Christian faith. And so we're so glad that you're here. Um, our search, our seeking hearts, are never satisfied this side of heaven. The search, the seeking, should continue. Uh, There's always more to learn and understand and grow um, in our relationship with God. It's never static. And so if you're able this morning, would you stand with me? And we're going to recite our passage to ponder for the last time. It's taken from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 55, verses 6 and 7. And so there's something about us speaking God's word so that we can hear ourselves and we can hear our neighbors. So would you join me by beginning at verse 6? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So our teaching theme this morning is unexpected meetups with God can lead to significant transformation of identity, vocation, and character. And we're going to take a look at three individuals, in uh, two in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. Uh, we already looked at one of our texts, but we'll read it again in just a moment from Genesis, uh, where Jacob has an encounter, an unplanned encounter with a man that he discovers later is God. and And then Moses, who has an encounter with a bush, it's just a bush, but when God comes, it becomes something extraordinary, and Moses is enlisted into a beautiful holy vocation of doing God's work, partnering with him. And then we'll take a look at the Apostle Paul who had an encounter that he didn't plan on having and what God had to say to him through it all. So let's begin with Jacob. An unexpected meeting with God can lead to a transformed sense of identity. Now, we're living at a time in history right now where the concept of identity is a loaded cultural conversation. Um, But in this context for Jacob, um, we learn that God addresses God addresses the dominant narrative of Jacob's life, and he invites Jacob to um, reconsider who he is and God's interaction through this wrestling experience with Jacob, Jacob and God together, some hand-to-hand wrestling, uh, leads to a renewed sense of identity. In fact, Jacob ends up with a new name. Uh, But God confronts him with who he is. And it is a wonderful, wonderful story. I think what we need to do, though, before I read the text to you, is just help you with this idea, biblical idea of blessing. The first time blessing shows up in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 1, where God is making his beautiful, good world, and he's speaking things into existence. And then he populates the sea creatures and the birds of the air. And the text says that he blessed them. That's the first time we see that word show up. He blessed them, and he, uh, again, said that they should be fruitful and multiply. So there was a sense in which God blesses the creature with the ability to reproduce after its own kind. That's a very important part of the blessing. And then the second time we see blessings show up is a little later in the very same chapter, chapter one of the book of Genesis. God makes the first man, the first woman in his image and likeness. And it says that he blessed them and he gave them the same mandate to be fruitful and to multiply. But then he adds something. He says to rule over, to have dominion over the birds of the air, the fish and the the animals that move along the ground. He gives them dominion or rulership, so to speak, under his leadership of God's good creation. And so, this idea of blessing from a Hebrew mindset is about reproduction, the capacity for reproduction, and rulership. And so, this is really, really important because Jacob has an interaction with God, and blessing is somewhat at the heart of it, including identity. So, let's take a look at this again. It'll be the second time we've looked at it today, but it's found in, in Genesis uh, chapter 30, 32. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. What is about to happen is Jacob is going to have a confrontation with his brother Esau. The backstory here is that Jacob has spent most of his life deceiving, supplanting his brother. In fact, Um, we hear in the early narrative of Jacob that he and his brother are actually wrestling in the womb. All of these themes, always look for repetition and patterns. Jacob is wrestling with his brother Esau in the womb before he is born, before they are born. So Jacob was left all alone. He is having an important night. Because this is the last night before he goes to meet his brother Esau, whom he kind of manipulated for his birthright, if you know the biblical story. It's a very, very big deal. And so Jacob wonders if Esau is coming to kind of eliminate him from uh, human history. And he's a little concerned. So Jacob was left all alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. That's all we hear. A man wrestles with him till daybreak. We get this idea, or the picture seems to suggest that Jacob wasn't expecting this. It was a moment in time when this man comes and they have a wrestling match. And not for 10 minutes or not for an hour, but for the evening. The text says that um, he wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, this is an interesting passage. The God figure here can't overpower him. He touched the socket of Jacob's hip. In Hebrew, literally, it means, I did some learning on that this week, It literally means that God caused a strike to the hollow of Jacob's inner thigh. That's what the Hebrew word means. He punched him up by, and I do I mean this with all due respect, but the Hebrew, according to Dr. Tim Mackey, seems to suggest that God hit him in the part where he would have been endowed with fruitfulness. So he hit him on the inside of his thigh and he dislocated his hip. It's kind of like, what's going on here? It's, it's an unusual story. In English, it doesn't do its service. He touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for its daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob has been spending most of his life trying to take the blessing. When God, all along, even through his grandfather Abram, who gets renamed another part of the story to become Abraham, he promised that he would bless him and make his name great. All of this is so significant in this passage. And so um, he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What a change of conversation! What is your name? Jacob's asking for blessing, and God says, what's your name? I want you to stop running, and I want you to face who you are. I want you to consider your identity. Jacob means supplanter, deceiver. He was like a fraudster in a sense, and this is happening even before he's born There's this grasping of the heel that means supplanter. The Hebrew, according to Tim Mackey, is a a sense in which Jacob has been tripping people all his life. Tricking and tripping is what Jacob has been up to. He says, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. And Israel means to wrestle or to struggle with God. It will be Israel because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome And Jacob said, please tell me your name. If we're having conversations about names, who are you? And then God just says, why do you ask my name? Why do you ask my name? God is, often he answers questions with questions. Because he wants us to go a little bit deeper than the surface of things. Why do you want to know my name? Then he blessed him there. He gets around to blessing him. He blesses him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Have you ever wondered, those of you who have been familiar with that story, why God deals such a harsh strike to Jacob that causes him to limp for the rest of his life? Just before this interaction, Jacob is confronted with the reality that he's going to have to interact with his brother. He's fearing for his life because Jacob has been on the run for years. There's no more running for Jacob. He's going to limp now. God deals an injurious blow to Jacob. He's the God who wounds... And he's the God who heals. And in order to get Jacob to face himself and to slow down, he deals a strike to the inside hollow part of Jacob's thigh, which brings about a dislocated hip. And now he's walking with a limp. An unexpected encounter with God. Isn't God just supposed to be the one who gives good things? I don't like this idea of a God who wounds. Maybe that's what you're thinking this morning. I'd rather just get the blessing. Could there be a blessing in the wound? Could there be some redemptive aspects to the awareness of who we are and the awareness of who God is when we are slowed down enough and we're reminded as we shuffle along in life That this, too, in some redemptive sense, is a blessing. 21st century Western Canadians, I'll put myself in the same category, we like a whole different conversation around blessing. Comes with luxurious vehicles, cottages on the water. But knowing ourselves and knowing God. Okay, Uh, two thoughts for you really quick. An authentic wrestle with God will leave us with an altered view of ourselves. This is illumination. If we're going to close the gap, if we're going to, um, again, not be the kinds of people who are reluctant, um, we will wrestle with God, and it will lead to an altered view of self. This is what Jacob experienced. Jacob was a schemer, a taker, and he leaves ready to deal more generously and responsibly with his brother Esau. And then secondly, an experience of hand-to-hand rigor with God will leave us changed. There's transformation that happens. Jacob leaves with a new name. And Jacob walks differently in the world. When we encounter God, um, we're supposed to walk differently, right? Before we encounter God, we walked a certain way. Walk is a metaphor of how we live our lives. When we encounter God, we walk differently. We live differently, too. This was the case for Jacob. All right, so Jacob's our first character. Our second one is Moses. And he represents this idea of an unexpected meeting with God can lead to a change of mission. Life in the kingdom of God results in the adoption of a very different worldview. Those of you who've put your saving faith in Jesus and who are learning to orient your life around him recognize that the most important thing about you is that you are a son or a daughter of the one true God. And once you are adopted into his holy family, you've been granted a global community to call family. Everybody else who puts their saving faith in Jesus. And then when we walk with God... We get a new lens by which we see the world. We have a new lens by which we see one another, a new lens by which we see ourselves. Um, Moses had an experience with God on the backside of the desert. Uh, He had killed an Egyptian soldier. He's on the run. Uh, Just in case, by the way, a little sidebar, if you ever wonder if you're disqualified to be in the family of God because of the things that you've done in your life, always remember that the people that God has used historically all have a story that is um, not really reputable. There are murderers, there are adulterers, there are liars. Listen, Abram was ready to give up his wife because he was afraid. He said, she's not my wife, she's my sister. And he hands her over, not once but twice, right? We have this going on, and these are the patriarchs. We all have a story of regrettable moments, smaller, larger, but they're regrettable moments. And thanks be to God for mercy and grace that covers them and enlists us in his service and makes us useful. This is also Moses' experience. He was a murderer, and he's on the run. Jacob is a liar, and he's a manipulator, and he's a fraudster, and he's on the run. Moses is a murderer, and he's on the run. God comes to people who are on the run, This is how he operates. He comes looking for those whom he loves, which is every single one of us. Moses had an experience with God that was quite unexpected. He's tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. He married a Midianite woman, and he's tending the flock, and he's wandering around, and he stumbles upon a bush that is burning, but it's not consumed It's ordinary but extraordinary. Ever had one of those moments where it's an ordinary moment in time, but because God is present, it's extraordinary? I've had many, many moments in my life where I've been watching a movie or having a conversation or dealt a a set of circumstances, and it's like, these are not ordinary times. This is not an ordinary moment. This is not an ordinary conversation. There is way more going on. God comes to us in the unexpected experiences of our lives, to get our attention, to invite us to reconsider who we are, to invite us into mission, partnership with him in the world. And so this is what's happening for, for Moses. Um, so let's pick this up, Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, and the priest, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord, whenever you see the angel of the Lord, it is the second person in the Godhead. This is the pre incarnate Christ. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. It's burning, but it's not consumed. It's unusual. It's ordinary, but extraordinary. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. God's into names too. He calls us by name, right? Jacob, he says, what's your name? Oh, by the way, we're going to do a name change for you. Gave a name change to Abram. Here he says to Moses, he calls him twice by name. And Moses says, here I am. God says, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. Just like what was in your heart, Moses, it's in my heart too. But we'll do it differently this time. And to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Remember we talked earlier about this idea of a new worldview, a new lens by which we see the world? Moses was carrying the heart of God when he saw his people being mistreated, but he had a different way of looking at the situation and a different way of resolving it. When we have adopted a thoroughly Christian worldview, we see the world through the lens of Jesus, right? Through the crucified king. We begin to see our problems, our life situations very, very differently. And solutions are approached very, very differently. And so God doesn't send him with a sword. He sends him with a staff because it wasn't going to be a violent way that Moses was going to lead the people out. It was going to be just an obedient way of inviting, again, Pharaoh to change his heart. And we know the story along the way. So ordinary can become extraordinary when God chooses to meet us and meet us with a burning bush experience. I love the story in Luke chapter 24 where the men, post-resurrection of Jesus, they're walking on the road to Emmaus. And the text tells us afterwards that their hearts were burning within them as they spoke to the unrecognized Jesus in that moment. When we have one of those extraordinary moments in the middle of ordinary experiences, our hearts tend to burn a little bit. There's a sense in which there's more going on here. And we didn't make it happen. We didn't go seeking to find it. It found us. God himself found us. So ordinary can become extraordinary when God chooses to meet with us. And then finally, unexpected meetings with God can lead to a greater awareness of God's character. He's in this moment where he's in the presence of God and God says, by the way, take off your shoes. You're standing in a different kind of environment right now. Holiness, the holy presence of God requires us to be aware of the fact that we are in a very unusual, unexplained in a sense environment. That this is not business as usual. Um, When we have moments like this when we gather, part of it is my leadership style and the way that I communicate. Part of it is our Protestant, charismatic, evangelical liturgy. But we have participated in a what you would call almost a low church environment when it comes to structure and the liturgy of our worship gatherings. It's very conversational, it's very informal, it's very relaxed. And that's a wonderful thing because we put the emphasis in some ways on the friendship of God, and it's a beautiful thing. But I also want to invite us to not lose sight of the fact that God is holy, he is transcendent, and when we gather like this for worship or when we take communion, right? when we are eating and drinking and taking into ourselves through symbol, the blood and the body of the Lord Jesus, it is tremendously sacred. So when we are in the presence of God, it's important that we don't lose sight through our relaxed and even my experience of the conversational way that we teach and the culture of our church that we still remember that God is the one true God of heaven and earth that he is holy and transcendent and is worthy of our deepest respect and regard can I get an amen from you for that one amen amen Amen. (laughs) okay so number three the last thought for consideration today is this an unexpected meeting with God can lead to the right kind of acceptance. Um, A few weeks ago, we talked about radical acceptance, where we get to the place in our lives, not because we don't care, but because it's the only way forward. Um, You've probably heard people say culturally, it is what it is, but it's sort of like a nonchalant kind of like shrug of the shoulders, it is what it is, I can't do anything about it kind of idea. That's not what I'm going after here. That's sort of like, it's like, I don't really care very much culturally. What I'm going after is, this is the only way, this is the only way that I can get from here to there, is to say, it is what it is. That's radical acceptance. This set of circumstances, this life situation, I have limited power and control. I would love to have more, but I, ha- I don't have as much as I would like. And so I have to say, this is what this is, and I will accept it. That's what can happen for us when God comes to us, and whether it's an awakening to who we really are or the circumstances that we've been assigned in life. There are so many things in our lives that we get assigned, and we can't do a lot about it. And I have so many things in my life that I've been assigned that are like, God, I didn't deserve any of that, because it's in the the category of just grace gifts. And there are other things that get assigned to you and to me as well, that they're not really, they don't feel like grace gifts in the moment as we've already talked about. But in God's economy and in God's providence and in God's sovereignty, they are. They are, um, the grace will come. Even when what we're facing doesn't feel like a gift. And so this is where I want to take you today is um, the opposite of white knuckle living, right? Where we choose to abandon. We say, I can't hold so tightly to everything. I have to open up my hands And let go. Um, You're probably familiar, those of you who've been around church a little while, if you're new to us, there's a hymn that's called It Is Well, and one of the verses goes like this, when peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Familiar with that song? I grew up singing it, I think every third Sunday at Agent Court as a kid. It's an important message. When we adopt radical acceptance, we say, it is well with my soul. It might be paralyzingly challenging, but I choose to say, yes. Even so, Lord Jesus, I'm yours. An appropriate, healthy, positive resignation is what it is. And it is the way forward. Paul learned this. He learned that suffering isn't pleasant. No one in this room loves suffering. Suffering isn't pleasant, and it's appropriate to ask for relief. If we're suffering and we're not asking for relief at some point, um, that would be very unusual. When we're sick, we're unwell, we're in between jobs, whatever the challenge might be with our families, we say, God, would you please bring relief to this suffering? It's what we do. It's what humans do. But there are redemptive aspects to it that can be incredibly transformational. With this, we're going to land. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul has this. He talks about a certain person, and the person is him who was caught up into the third heaven. He saw and heard things that were inexpressible, things he can't even really put into human language. It was an unbelievable experience. But Paul tells us, because of these surpassing great revelations, there was provided for him, to keep him grounded, a thorn in the flesh. A thorn in the flesh is one of those experiences, just like Jacob would have had with his wrenched hip. He's limping for the rest of his life. It's th- we don't know what Paul's was. Was it his eyesight? Was it a difficult marriage? What, what was going on in Paul's life? We don't really know. Mental health issue. Paul had some challenges. But God permitted there to be this thorn, this difficult, uncomfortable experience for him to keep him grounded and humble. So we'll pick up the story here in, in verse 7. Um, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, that's how Paul says it, because of these surpassingly great revelations, he says, "I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan." right? It's sort of like a job, a Job picture. a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I asked God. I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, "My grace is sufficient for you. It may not feel like a grace gift, but my grace will be there for you in the middle of something that doesn't feel like a gift. My grace is sufficient, it'll be enough for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul has a new lens by which he sees the world. I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships. This is counterintuitive, countercultural. In persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, this is the upside-down kingdom of God. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Have you had that experience in your life? The thorn is real. It's maybe deeper into your side than you want to acknowledge, but it's there. It's real. You feel overwhelmed by it, but there's the grace of God. There's the strength of the Lord. In the face of your own weakness, there's something beautiful that happens. So Paul helps us understand this. An unexpected meeting with God can leave us with a changed view of God and how he works in the world. God uses, and I love this, this will be one of my books I'm going to read while I'm on vacation. Um, Henry Nouwen wrote a book called The Wounded Healer. He uses wounded people to help other people get whole. Sometimes your greatest wound becomes your greatest opportunity to do good in the world. And so I have a feeling Jacob told a lot of people about the reason why he's limping. I have a feeling Paul had a lot of really good, meaningful conversations with other people who had their own thorns in the flesh. And for you and I, whatever that might look like, we have opportunities in the face of our own limp, in the face of our own inconveniences and the discomforts of our world, and we can, with the help of the Lord Jesus, see them fully redeemed and reclaimed for his purposes. So finding God in the unexpected. Can't plan it, can't program it. It happens to us and there is a word within a word, there's a moment within a moment, there's something more going on, and you're encountering God, and nobody else may even know about it, but you do, and God does, and he's speaking with you, and he's asking you to touch him and to reach out. He's done all that he's prepared to do to reach for you and for me, and he's just inviting us to reach back. If you're here today and you have never touched God, you have never said, I'm going to use my freedom to reach out to touch God, I want to encourage you to do that. There's no one way to do this, even though there's one way to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There are no magical words or phrases. It's just literally a conversation, a prayer, a reach. And we say, God, I reach, I try to reach frequently in my prayer walks, throughout my days, I'm inviting you to do likewise. We just reach, 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 and you'll find God, even though it might not seem this way. God does not withdraw and hide and play hard to find. Sometimes life seems to present that idea to us, but God is just inviting us to be searching people. There's something very, very beautiful and attractive about a searching heart. I say this to you as church family. Don't stop searching for God. Keep leaning in keep reaching for him, not so that you can tip the scales of some sort of merit system, but just to know him and to be with him. God wants to be with us. In fact, in Jesus, God is with us. But in a beautiful way, through the Holy Spirit, God wants to just be with us. I talked to someone this week who said they're troubled by the fact that they always feel God wants something from them. I said, what if we could turn that and spin it and reframe it and think about God is less interested in getting something from you and way more interested in being with you. And wherever you go, God is with us. And we can experience his life-giving presence. We can draw upon his strength and his grace. It's called practicing the presence of God. Practicing the presence of God. When the band is playing and when the band is not playing, when we are seated in this room and when we are in faraway places at work, at school, at home, we can practice the presence of God wherever we are. I'm mindful of David. Psalm 139. Where can I go from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I settle on the far side of the sea, David says, there you are. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the night will kind of conceal me, he says, even the darkness will be light to you. There is no hiding from God. He is with us and he sees us and he just invites you to be with him. God is with us. The big question now is, will we we be with him? Amen. 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 Lord Jesus, thank you that you are with us. Thank you that we can, whether we go to heights, above and beyond our capacity to imagine, or to make our bed in the depths, you are with us. Wherever our travels may take us, wherever there is an assignment of service, you go with us. Thank you that you fill the universe with your presence. We are not alone, Lord. Thank you for that. That is an awesome reality that is a beautiful thing to consider and to take with us today. You go with us. Amen. Amen.